I'm Chris Costello, and welcome to On Cue. I look forward to sharing with you topics and guests which may be out of the ordinary and some very extraordinary people who are making a noticeable imprint in today's world. And now, part two, with Francis Gary Powers Jr., co-author of the widely acclaimed book Spy Pilot with Keith Dunavant. If he lies to him, gets caught, he can get shot, face the death penalty for espionage. So my dad does the following for the next uh, three months of solitary confinement uh, and interrogations. He basically tells the full truth when he knows they can verify the information in the press. It gives him credibility. He lies to him outright when he knows they can't uh, find out the information, names of pilots, number of missions, specifications about the equipment on board. And he gives a part lie, a part truth, dances around the question when he knows that they know something about the question they're asking, but not enough to contradict his answer. So this is how he got through his three months of uh, interrogations. And what is unique is when dad is brought back home, he's debriefed by the CIA, he starts to work for them, continues to work for them, training agents. He's training them on what to expect if captured, how to go through an interrogation, how to appear to cooperate when in fact you're not giving them any information of use. So this is one of the reasons the CIA wanted him back home, to be debriefed, what the hell happened, (laughs) and Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. to figure out, hey, you have experience now that nobody else has. We need to learn from you what to do to prepare our agents. And so that's what Mm -hmm, he did for about mm -hmm. six months upon his return home. Gary, I must have seen Bridge of Spies maybe two, three times. Each time I am on the edge of my seat. It's riveting, especially the scene Your father's in the cockpit of the U-2. He's shot down. He has seconds in which to eject from the plane. Yes. Your book points out something very interesting, that when the wreckage or portions of the U-2 wreckage was brought to Gorky Park, it was paraded, actually, for everyone to see. There's an American in the crowd who was there on business, and he just happens to be the father of future filmmaker Steven Spielberg. So I'm curious, do you think that this had any bearing on Spielberg wanting to do this film? Yeah, well, with the film, I I wish they had reached out to me first, but I actually reached out to them. Um, Back in 2014, I'm getting rumors that, hey, you know, there's the Spielberg movie might uh, portray your father. And I'm going, what? What's this all about? It's a rumor. It's nothing. He's not going to do it. He has no reason to do it. Then in July of 2014, I get confirmation through the Hollywood uh, Reporter or the trade newspapers there in Hollywood, that he's going to do this movie that's going to portray my father. And my first thought is, how do you get in touch with Steven Spielberg? (laughs) You just can't (laughs) pick up the phone, right? Very busy man. Everybody wants a piece of him. Um, So I reach out to some friends in Hollywood, a dead end. I cannot um, uh, get an introduction. I resort to Google. I look up his name, his movie's names. I find people he worked with, look up their names, find some of their email addresses, send out an unsolicited email. And I basically say, hey, Gary Powers Jr., trying to reach Steven Spielberg about this movie that will portray my father. It's very important that we establish contact to express the Powers family's concerns. If he bases the portrayal of my father on the misinformation of the time, they'll be painting him in a negative light. If they base it off the declassified information that's come to surface the last 50-plus years, they'll be painting him as a hero to our country. So for very obvious reasons, important to establish contact. 
As a result of that email, I get a phone call from Mark Platt. Mark Platt is the producer on this film, better known for his production of Wicked on Broadway. So he's a very well-respected, well-regarded individual in the Hollywood circuit. Um, He and I talk for an hour. He likes what I have to say. At the end of the conversation, he says, hey, Mr. Powers, uh, we'd like to hire you on as a technical consultant. So I signed on the dotted line and uh, helped out where I could behind the scenes. I thought it was a very good way for me to be uh, uh, proactive and try to steer them in the right direction. Otherwise, I would have had no recourse or no say whatsoever had I just walked away. So I'm very glad that I did participate in this film as a technical consultant. It was an honor and a privilege to work with Spielberg, Hanks, uh, Austin Stoll, who portrayed my father, Mark Reliance, who ended up winning an Oscar for his performance of Rudolph Abel, uh, and getting to see how they put this film together. So there's a little bit of misinformation in the film. He got that from the uh, period of time. But at the very end of the movie, he honors my mm-hmm. father as a hero to our country in the postscripts. So I can't complain. Mm-hmm. The movie's very well done. I thought the movie was excellent. In fact, one of the, the most riveting scenes, of course, is your father in the cockpit of the U-2. And the U-2 was shot down, correct? Um, right, correct. Yeah, was, there was no okay. flame out. There was no sabotage. There was no UFO, all this conspiracy theory stuff. You know, when you think of it, he had seconds in which to eject, you know, from that plane. And what was it? He went from, what was it, 40,000 to 30,000 to 15,000 feet before. Went, uh, how many feet was he above the ground before he finally got the canopy open and uh, he was ejected out? Right. He uh, was shot down by the near miss of a Soviet SA-2 new and improved missile that could reach 70,000 feet plus. Um, at, he was at his assigned altitude of 70,500 feet when uh, the near miss of the missile uh, uh, broke up the tail section and caused the plane to tumble out of the sky. He cool. bailed out at approximately 30,000 feet. He did not use the ejection seat. He basically crawled out of the plane. Um, he was connected by his air hose. He got stuck up with his air hose. In the movie, it's 10 feet of air hose swinging around the fuselage and crawling back Ooh. into the cockpit. That's exaggerated. <laughs> uh, in, in real life, with about two or three feet there. of air hose, he's half in the cockpit, half out of the cockpit. His face plate's frosted over. He can't see out past his nose, can no longer reach the destruct button, ends up breaking free of the air hose, falling free of the aircraft. Parachute opens at 15,000 feet. He parachutes down to the ground where he's caught, apprehended, turned over to the Soviet authorities. You know, it's so interesting, too, because you think of, you know, the exchange, and I love the exchange in the film, and how Spielberg really captured that moment. And I'm thinking of Rudolph Abel. Here he goes. He returns home to a hero's welcome. Yet your father returns under this cloud of suspicion by our government. And although you were too young, and I'm sure he didn't, you know, bring this out to you, how do you think he reacted to that? That had to have really stung you know, that one was, was returned a hero and one, you know, was returned as a traitor. Right. Um, suspicion, traitor. Some people thought he was a traitor. Some people thought he was a hero in America. What I have discovered through my research is basically he gets home. He is shocked to discover that there are Americans out there and even government officials who thinks he betrayed his country. He is debriefed by the CIA for three weeks at a safe house in Maryland. Something like an interrogation, but it's a debriefing. They want to get to the bottom of what happened. Are you telling the truth? Did you defect? Did you land the plane? <laughs> I mean, try to find mm-hmm. and get to the bottom of it. So after three weeks, he is cleared by the CIA. They know that he did everything he was supposed to do. 
He followed orders to the T. He then appears in the Senate Select Committee hearing in March of 62. The senators, eight hours of questions and answers back and forth. At the end of the session, they exonerate him of any wrongdoing. The U.S. Senate shows him to be a fine young man, performing well under dangerous circumstances. We've got the CIA that's cleared him. We've got the uh, Senate that has cleared him. But the court of public opinion has not yet cleared him. The misinformation circulating around, the editorials in the newspaper, the generals and the politicians saying, I know what happened, and they were just blowing smoke. They didn't have a clue as to what took place or what my father did or didn't do. But because they are the experts, they get quoted in the newspaper, fake information, fake news circulates around to my father's detriment of his reputation. For the most part, my father uh, took it in stride. He didn't care what other people thought he should or should not have done. He knew that what he did was the right thing to do under the circumstance he found himself in. And so mm-hmm. he gets back to life. He's working at the CIA. He's getting adjusted to America, freedom, being able to go out when he wants. Uh, romance is starting to happen with my mom. Um, his first wife, Barbara, that marriage is disintegrating. They're going through a divorce. And so this all happens within the first six to eight months of his return home. But he adjusts fine. Um, uh, there was no ill effects from his incarceration. There was, no, there was a little bit of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, what used to be called shell shock. Um, Mm -hmm. where he would wake up in the middle of the night, night fright, cold sweat, thinking he was back in the prison cell. But the longer he was stateside, the less that happened, and they eventually subsided. Um, There was no ill effects from his incarceration, or else he wouldn't be able to fly the U-2 again. He had no Mm -hmm. psychological Mm -hmm. or physical ailments upon his return home, other than some night frights that uh, subsided. You know, one of the things I remember is visiting your home in Sherman Oaks and that wonderful cozy den. And on the wall were all these beautiful framed photographs of your dad, both in uniform, you know, with family. And I can remember just kind of standing there and just eyeing every picture individually and trying to get a feel for this man. All I felt was this tremendous love of family. And I'm going to cut to now 1977. Okay, so your father is a helicopter pilot for KNBC. He's following brush fires in Santa Barbara County. Returning, he runs out of fuel, crashed in Balboa Park in Encino, California, which killed both he and his cameraman, George Spears. I remember that, actually, when it happened. And in your book, I read where your dad had at one point said to your mother, if anything happens to me, don't even try to get me into Arlington. There's, they won't allow it. Sadly, when your father's helicopter crashed in Balboa Park, Encino, California, your mom was determined to have your father buried there in Arlington. Can you explain how she went about this? Because I know Sue was very determined. When she got focused on something, she went for it. Oh, yes. Um, Mom was definitely a pistol. And uh, don't get in her way if she wants something done. (laughs) I love that Um, about her. (laughs) Stubborn. And I think I've inherited a little bit of that. Um, uh, so we can talk about that offline. <laughs> good lady, good lady. <laughs> um, when mom and dad were alive, basically what you said is correct. Uh, dad said, don't bother. They don't want me in Arlington. It's not worth the hassle. You know, just ignore it. Mom does not ignore it. Mom uh, is working with Greg Anderson, a dear family friend, a Southern California developer who was my father's best friend. Uh, Greg uh, started to do developments with Truesdale and Beverly Hills after World War II, ended up building Westlake Village, then Rancho Mirage uh, in Palmdale. He did Quartz Hill. Um, 
but he did major Southern California developments plan communities. And so he comes over to the house. He's helping my mom to work through the loss of dad. He's just passed away. Uh, mom's uh, losing it, basically, you know, going a little crazy because her husband has just passed away. So Greg helps her to navigate everything going forward. He has to call the CIA. Uh, he gets in touch with them. They give him a phone number to call. He said to me later that it was the craziest thing he'd ever experienced. He'd call this phone number. No one would talk. It'd just be blank airspace. He would say, hello, this is Greg Anderson, and then the conversation would start. <laughs> oh and then um, in regards to Arlington, mom is talking with Greg about where to bury my father. Greg's going, Sue, I understand you want Arlington, but what's the, second, what's the backup? Mom said, there is no backup. It's Arlington or nothing. And she was determined to get that done. So through the help of Greg Anderson, through the help of Leo Gary, who was a CIA Air Force liaison in the U-2 program, he confirmed with my mom that all U-2 pilots were awarded the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross in 1959. That helped to open up the door for an Arlington burial. But what it took was presidential authorization. And it was President Jimmy Carter who did presidential authorization to get my father into Arlington. And so through mom's uh, tenacity and determination, along with the help from Greg Anderson, Leo Gary, and some other individuals, um, the president of the United States authorized dad to be interned in Arlington National Cemetery. Unbelievable. Gary, I know we've got limited time here, and there's so many questions I, I want to ask you, but what, I mean, you were young when your father died, but um, what was your relationship like with him up to that point? It was close, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, well, at first, it was a normal father-son relationship, hiking, biking, fishing, uh, flying with them. Um, I'd get in trouble. I'd be disciplined. I mean, it was a normal family. Um, mm -hmm. I just, I, I didn't realize what he went through until after he died. And by that time, it was too late to ask him questions. So that's one of the reasons I started doing all this research, is to find out about my father, the truth of what took place, um, and mm -hmm. to set the record straight. And that's what my book, mm -hmm. Spy Pilot, does. It, it takes dad's mm -hmm. reputation from infamy and controversy in the 60s to that of an American hero today. And it goes through how he was ultimately awarded posthumously the POW medal and the Silver Star. So we're very happy that our government was able to step up to the plate, honor my father, set the record straight. It took him 40 and 50 years respectively, but it goes mm -hmm. to show it's never too late to set the record straight. Oh, my God. You know, I've got to tell you a brief story and then just two more things. But the Smithsonian Institute back in the 90s, I believe, was it the uh, flight suit? Ah, that was your, the donation. That was, was the donation? Ah, yes. I can't really recall what the display was. But I remember a very good friend of mine, Carl Wiegand, he flew for Air America during the Vietnam War. And he came as an invited guest. And he was decorated in his medals. God bless him. He's He's passed on. But I remember a very touching scene, and your mother was there, but Carl went up to a display of your father. He saluted him, you know, and I saw Sue kind of wiping, you know, her eye, but he saluted him. And I thought, that is so beautiful, Carl. You know, Carl looked at him as a, a hero who was wrongly criticized, you know, and, and shunned by the government. Um, and I wanted you to know that because I don't think I'd ever told you that before. No, no, I've never heard that story. Thank you for sharing. 
Um, for about 1995, May 1st, uh, the Powers family donated a lot of Dad's belongings to the Air and Space Museum. Uh, we felt was it was it. a normal, natural place for his artifacts, his belongings to rest uh, and be displayed and or cared for uh, at the national level. Um, oh. I still have a bunch of stuff in my home and letters he wrote to and from prison and, and journals mm. and, and, and all the letters he, he wrote back and forth to family that got to him. Mm-hmm. So I've got this archive and I've been working with that trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, not only do I have the spy pilot book, I also have another book out called Letters from a Soviet Prison. Yes. And it's dad's letters to and from his family, his wife, his mom, his dad, his siblings, as well as those that were sent to him. And it's a very unique first-hand account of what my father went through, his thoughts, his feelings, his hopes and despairs while he's incarcerated. It's basically a primary source document. Uh, it includes the journal he kept while incarcerated. So I thought oh. it was very important for the historical record to have this primary source document available. It's now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's self-published, but you can get it through those uh, mediums. Absolutely. And uh, Gary, I've got to say one thing, too. This is where you stand out to me. is so amazing. You founded the Cold War Museum in 1996 in Warrington, Virginia. What was your motivation launching the museum, which had to be a humongous undertaking? Oh, yes. Yeah, this is another good story. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am uh, in graduate school at George Mason University doing a graduate degree in public administration, nonprofit management. I start to give lectures to high school students in Northern Virginia. Nine times out of ten, I'd walk into a classroom to give a talk on the U-2 incident. I'd get blank stares from the kids. They thought I was there to talk about the U-2 rock band. So (laughs) that's the first clue that something had to be done to preserve Cold War history. So a few years go by, and I realize that Dad is very well known. He's famous. He's in the history books for his participation in the Cold War. What I also realize is that there are hundreds of thousands of other men and women who fought, sacrificed, and died during this conflict, who have not been recognized. So the uh, catalyst to create this museum was to honor Cold War veterans, preserve Cold War history, and educate students about this time period. So I found the museum in 96. I think it's going to take three years to get open, fundraise $3 million. It shouldn't be too hard. It takes 15 years to get brick and mortar. And for the first 10 years, I am volunteering as the chairman of the board leading the effort forward. Uh, We get to uh, 2005, about, and I uh, have fundraised enough money to draw a salary and work on it full-time. So between 2000 and 2010, I'm working uh, in my home office. I'm moving the museum forward. Things are going well. I'm getting grants. I'm getting foundation money. I'm getting donations. We're building up a surplus to open up. Then 2008 hits, (laughs) and some of the donations dry up. Um, But we end up opening in 2011 at Vint Hill Farms Station. Uh, It is a former Army communication base used by NSA, CIA, and other government agencies to monitor the electronic communications, the signals, uh, and the electronic communications from embassies in D.C. and around the world foreign governments. So it was an operational listening post for many years, Cold War era. So we get that site, and we open in 2011. We've been open now for seven years on the weekends, staffed by volunteers, midweek by appointment. 
We do have one paid staff member, a part-time executive director, Jason Hall, who helps to lead the volunteers and the docents forward and is continuing to advance the museum where he can. So more information online, coldwar.org, C-O-L-D-W-A-R.org. That's amazing. I just, I was looking at your bio. You know, I want everybody to know you lecture around the world. You've got dates coming up in 2020, which we're going to promote on our blog, Facebook, website. You're a board yes, member of the Strategic. Yes, <laughs> good old California. You're going to be in Palm Desert, San Diego, Riverside, I believe, Burbank. And we're going to do a lot to promote that, Gary, because anybody that does not see you as missing out on a, on a real experience. But you're also a board member of Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum near Omaha, Nebraska, honorary board member of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Everybody, please, you know, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, you got to get Spy Pilot. It is a page turner. You won't be able to put it down. If they would like an autographed copy, they can go to spypilotbook.com, and that'll get directly to me, spypilotbook.com. Okay, spypilotbook.com. Okay. Yes. And they can get an autographed copy. Okay, Correct. Beautiful. Now, it's be a little more expensive than them getting it off the uh, online, but uh, it comes from me. I got to pay for postage. It's I, worth you know, it. All that stuff. Yeah. It's so. worth it. Gary, I stand in awe of you. Knew you as, as a teenager. You were great then. You're absolutely wonderful, fantastic now. I love it. Let's do it again, okay? All right, Chris, thank you so much for taking time to interview me. I think it was great to get back in touch, and I hope to see you in California in about four or five months. You are going to. <laughs> Thanks, Perfect. Gary. All right, Chris, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to On Cue. I invite you to visit our Facebook page, On Cue Chris Costello, for more information and for upcoming guests. Remember, each of us has a voice and a story. So until next time, share a smile, laugh often, be kind to each other, and let's help make this an even better world.